Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. We are now approaching the end of the book of Revelation. We're going to start now in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8, and talk about the new heavens and the new earth. The judgment tends to be at the first of the book. Now the good stuff comes here at the end. Our context is this. In the last chapter, we saw Satan bound during the millennium so the gospel could spread, the millennium being the inner advent period between the first and second advent, in other words, the new covenant church age. There were two deaths and two resurrections mentioned. The first death, physical death, the second death, separation from God, the first resurrection, according to the non-premillennial view, is the resurrection of the saints in their spiritual beings, their their regeneration, their being born again. The pre-mills, of course, have it as a physical resurrection. And then, of course, the second resurrection is, is at the end of time. And then we, at the end of Revelation 20, we talked about Gog and Magog and the final battle at the end of the millennium. And then we talked about the great white throne, the final judgment at the end of time. So that was basically the great white throne. That's the end of the bad guys. That's everybody getting thrown into hell, the land beast, the sea beast, the non-believers, the great dragon, the devil, those whose names weren't written in the book of life. So the judgment's been done. Now we go to Revelation 21 and we talk about what's been established, the new heaven and the new earth. Now I'm going to give you a little introduction to chapters 21 and 22 here. There's two things that make many people think that chapters 21 and 22 refer to the final state. For example, in Revelation 21.1, we read about a new heavens and a new earth, and almost everybody interprets that as the as either the millennium at the end of a future millennium at the end of time or the final state even after the millennium, depending on which futurist you want to listen to. We see in verse 4, Revelation 21, And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And so people say, see there, that's obviously not talking about now because there is crying and pain. So that must refer to the the final state or the, or the future millennium, either one. But my view is not that view. I believe that chapters 21 and 22 refer to the time of the church, the new covenant, the inner advent period. If that sounds radical, I can tell you right now, I hope I'm going to be able to convince you because there's a lot of evidence that I'm right. My method of procedure is going to be this way. I'm going to try to neutralize the traditional interpretation of Revelation 21.1 and for those two verses I just mentioned, you heavens and you earth wiping away all tears. I'm going to have a long digression on that phrase, new heavens and new earth. Then I'm going to drop down to Revelation 21.4 where it talks about wiping away every tear from my eyes. Take that out of sequence and try to deal with that. I'm going to point out the many metaphors and symbols in chapters 21 and 22, which obviously point to the time of the church, not to a final state. Let's start with this phrase, a new heaven and a new earth. Well, let me read Revelation 21.1. Then I saw, that's John, saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now, of course, the first question you ask is, how can John see this? What is he looking at? I don't know what it looked like. But he saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, notice that the new there is not the Greek word for newness in kind. Excuse me, a newness in time, chronological newness, but a newness in kind. is like we say, I have a brand new car. We don't mean to say the car is, we're not really talking about when the car was made. We're just talking about it's, it's, it's a good quality. Greek word for superior quality is kainos, new. So it's a, a heaven and an earth. It's a state of existence for human beings that is of much superior quality than things used to be. Now, God's ultimate aim is to reconcile his creation to himself, to get a new heaven and a new earth. We see this in Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, 
whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood. So Paul there mentions things on earth, things in heaven. They need to be reconciled. So we're going to get a new heaven and a new earth. Now, this ultimately will be fulfilled at the end of time. I'm not denying that. I'm not, I don't want to go to the other extreme and say that everything is referring only to the new covenant, but not to the final state. I don't believe that. I believe it's the new heavens and the new earth is continuous from the time of the cross all the way to the, till we get to heaven, to the final state. Now, Chilton, David Chilton has a quote here I want to give you. Quote, that which is to be absolutely and completely true in eternity is definitely, or definitively, and progressively true now. N-O-W. Like the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is, and yet it's not here yet. Well, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the new covenant, which is basically the kingdom of God on earth. It is, but it's not yet. So it, I'm going to say it covers the whole period. Now, the primary significance of the phrase, in my view, is symbolic, not physical. It has to do with the blessings of salvation. It's not talking about the trees and the plants and the rocks and the seas. Although many people like to take it that way. They say the first heaven and earth passed away. That's talking about the earth and the rocks. But now we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to have new earth, new rocks, new birds, new animals. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. In fact, I'm pretty sure of it. Now, notice when he says new, that's recreation language. That's the opposite of the decreation language God uses for judgment. The sun turns dark, the moon turns blood red, the stars fall from the sky like figs from the tree, and so forth. Now, let me give you a reason why the new heaven and the new earth cannot just refer to the final state of bliss. The phrase itself comes from Isaiah chapter 65, 17 and 66, 22. Let me read those to you. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. That's Isaiah speaking. And the former things should not be remembered or come to mind. Next chapter, chapter 66, verse 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me, so your offspring and your name will endure. So Isaiah gives us the phrase new heaven and new earth. Now we look through those two chapters, 65 and 66, we're going to see things that cannot exist in the eternal state. For example, there's death. Isaiah 65, 20, the youth will die at the age of 100. Well, people are not going to be dying in heaven. There's going to be sad thoughts in this new heaven and new earth. Isaiah 65, 20 says, One who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Oh, somebody's going to say, Oh, he died at 99. I feel so sorry for him. We're not going to have sad thoughts in heaven. There's going to be labor. They will build. They will plant. Now, some people might argue, Well, labor's good. It's fun if it's done the right way and if it's not accompanied with the sweat of our brow. I'll give you that one. So that doesn't prove anything. How about bearing children? Are we going to bear children in heaven? I don't think so. But Isaiah says in Isaiah 65, 23, in the new heavens and the new earth, they will not bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. So Isaiah is talking about offspring and descendants in the final state. No, he's talking about in the new heavens and the new earth, which is the new covenant era, which includes the final state, but which also includes the church age. So that's the first reason why I don't believe that New heavens and new earth can refer to the final state. Also, I'd like to look at our, our verse here, Revelation 21.1, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The context of verse 1 is clearly associated with new covenant church things. For example, the very next verse, Revelation 21, verse 2, we read this, And the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Are we the bride of Christ now, or do we have to wait till the end of time before we're the bride of Christ? 
So the new heavens and the new earth, the capital of which is the new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem is a bride, and we are already the bride of Christ. We go down to verse 3, Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, that's probably God, because he's sitting on the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. A tabernacle is where God lives. That's where the Shekinah glory of God lives. It's in the midst of his people. Just like the Old Testament tabernacle in Jerusalem was surrounded by Jews. But where does God dwell now? He dwells in the midst of his people. And who were his people now? The church. Inner Advent. From first Advent to the second Advent. This is talked about in verse 3. So you see all the surrounding context of verse 1. Verse 1 mentioning new heaven and new earth. All the surrounding context is about church things. Bride of Christ. Tabernacle of God among men. Let's continue on with that. Revelation 21, verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now that's in Revelation 21. It talks about Jesus giving people water from the water of life. Does that sound familiar? John 4, verse 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. That's obviously talking about a first century phenomenon. The parallels with verse 6 in Revelation 21 in the context of the new heavens and the new earth, those parallels are so obvious it's not even necessary to comment on it. So you see the context greatly favors the new heavens and the new earth referring to the new covenant church age. We drop down to Revelation 21 verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Well, when did the apostles function? At the foundation of the church? First century AD or at the end of time? That's obvious. First century. So the context favors all right, so let me back up now. First argument that heaven and earth can't just refer to the end of time is because the phrase is used in Isaiah 65 and 66, and there things happen that only happen in the temporal state, not the eternal state. Dying, being thought, accursed, and so forth. Revelation 21.1 has a con where new heavens and new earth is mentioned, has a context of all sorts of things of the church age, being a bride, tabernacle of God, water of life, 12 apostles of the Lamb. That's church stuff. That's not end of the world stuff. Now, let's talk about Matthew 5.18, which helps prove my point, too. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, if you take heaven and earth in the physical sense, that means the law is going to be around here until the earth is burned up at the end, as it's allegedly said is going to happen. I don't believe that, but a lot of people do. So if the heaven and earth is physical, won't pass away physically, that means that in the new covenant, we're going to have to stone our rebellious children because that's in the law. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until the end of the physical universe. And we must not cut the corner of our beards. We can't plant different seeds in the garden. We can't eat shrimp. We've got to worship on Saturday. And we would have to sacrifice bulls and goats. But if you take heaven and earth symbolically as the old rabbinic Judaic system, which I do take it that way, then we have all those old covenant laws abolished at the cross. So... Jesus is saying, for I truly say to you, until the old, he, I'm putting the word old in there, but that's what he means, until the old heaven and earth pass away, the law is still going to be around. But then when all is accomplished, I, when Jesus says it is finished on the cross, and then the law shall pass away. And so you see, you take heaven and earth not physically, but as the old heaven and earth, the Jewish system. 
when that's taken away, when it's destroyed, AD 70, that passes the way, that paves the way for the new heaven and the new earth, because the old covenant, the old heaven and the old earth is kaputski. We look at Hebrews 12, 26 and 28. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised yet much more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So you see the two words there, earth and heavens, heaven and earth. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. So, the author of Hebrews is talking about the shaking of the old earth and the old heavens. Verse 26, shaking the earth. I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. He's talking about the destruction of the Old Testament rabbinic Judaic order. It's going down. That's the old heavens and earth. Well, that pays the way for the new heavens and new earth. Matthew 24, verse 35, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says this, Heaven and earth will pass away. That's the old heaven and the old earth, but my words will not pass away. Well, if the old heaven and earth pass away, guess what? There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And that, of course, Jesus was talking about the destruction of the rabbinic Pharisaical and Sadduceical Jewish system, religious system that was destroyed when one stone was not left on top of the other stone of the temple. He predicted that in the Olivet Discourse, and he says, heaven and earth is going to be going away. Well, the implication is there's going to be a new heaven and new earth, the new covenant church, which was began to spread rapidly after AD 70. We look at 2 Peter 3.13. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Now, if Peter is talking about something physical, of course, he's talking about that would, that would vigiate what I'm saying. But he's not talking about something physical. He's talking about something spiritual. Now, here's a quote from John Owen, the famous Puritan theologian who was a Cambridge professor in England, 16th century. He says this, I quote, I affirm that the heavens and earth here intended in this prophecy of Peter, the coming of the Lord, the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men mentioned in the destruction of that heaven and earth, do all of them relate not to the last and final judgment of the world, but to that utter desolation and destruction that was to be made of the Judaical church and state. And so what Peter is saying, hey, the old heavens and the old earth, just like the author of Hebrews, just like Jesus and all of that discourse, boom, it's gone. The old heavens and the old earth gone. So now we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, we're waiting for the spread of the new covenant gospel across the earth. Now, I don't have time to go into Second Peter 3. Now, that's a, that's, a, that's a whole, I've got a whole video on that, actually. That's the, the passage where the earth the present heavens and earth are being preserved for fire, the old heavens and the old earth. And all people always want to take that physically instead of metaphorically, instead of religiously. So I don't have time to go into all the arguments. There's lots of arguments showing that that's not talking about the ending, ending of a physical heaven and earth. It's talking about the ending of the old covenant heaven and earth. That, By the way, that was a phrase that the rabbis used all the time. The heaven and earth, they're talking about it, they, they would refer that to the Jewish Jewish religion. Now, notice that Peter, in this verse here, 2 Peter 3.13, he says, based upon his promise, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth. Well, what promise is he talking about? Well, he's referring to Isaiah 65 and 66, the new heavens and the new earth that we just talked about at the beginning of this audio. That's what he's talking about. He's referring to the new heavens and the new earth in Isaiah. Well, if Isaiah and Revelation are metaphorical referring to the new covenant, which I believe it is, it's logical that Peter's referring to the same event. The new heavens and the new earth. Now I realize that's, that's circular, but if you just buy my premises just for a little bit, it makes perfectly good sense that Peter's referring to Isaiah and saying, hey, we're waiting for the new covenant to be established. We're not waiting for the end of the world. Let me give you another argument why the new heavens and the new earth, or the new heaven and new earth. Some translations have heavens and some people have it heaven. 
So I'm not going to worry about that too much. Why new heavens and new earth refers to the establishment of the new covenant because the same language is used in connection with the establishment of the old covenant. For example, in Isaiah 51:16, we read this. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand in order to plant the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. That's the establishment of the old covenant with the old Israel. Say to Zion, that's the symbol of Israel, you are my people. It's not talking about planting the physical heavens and earth. It's talking about planting the, the old Israel, the old covenant Israel. So it makes sense then, if he's talking about the old Zion being planted and referring to that as heavens and earth, it makes sense that a new heavens and a new earth refers to the establishment of the new Zion. As in Hebrews 12, 22-23, Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the church. To myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge, who is judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect. Now, there's one little phrase at the end of verse 1 that we need to consider. John says at the end of verse 1, And there is no longer any sea. Well, now, if you're talking about something physical here and you have it on new earth or something physical and there's not going to be any sea in the new heaven and new earth, that I'll tell you right now, that's not what John's talking about. He's not talking about something. Why would there not be any sea in the new heaven and new earth? It's going to be nothing but desert, nothing but trees, nothing but mountains, no oceans? I don't think so. I actually do believe there's going to be a new physical order. Romans 8 says that the earth will be relieved from its bondage to decay. Well, that means that the earth is going to be set loose, and so it's going to still be here except in a better form, not subject to sin, and I can't believe the new earth will not have an ocean. But that's not what John's talking about here. He's talking about there's not going to be any sea. Now, David Chilton has got a, I call it a fancy argument as to what is going on here. What John meant, I don't believe his argument, but I'm going to give it to you. Then I'm going to tell you what I think it means. Chilton says that if you go back to Genesis 1-2, you will see that the sea is called the abyss. Let me read that. Genesis 1-2, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. There's the deep, the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. All right, so you got the watery depths as the sea. And then in Isaiah 27-1, you got Leviathan, the, the serpent, living in the sea. Isaiah 27-1, on that day the Lord with his relentless large strong sword will bring judgment on Leviathan, Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. Of course, serpent is a common name for the devil. He will slay the monster that is in the sea. So what, according to Chilton, what John is saying here is there's not going to be any sea anymore because there's not going to be any devil anymore. So, I mean, that's true. I don't know if that just seems to be stretching things a little bit. To me, sea always refers to Gentile nations, rebellious Gentile nations who are raising up their fist against God Almighty. Now there's not going to be any more sea. That's the standard way you interpret that symbol C. We've done it many times already. The sea beast, for example, Rome, the Gentile nations, they're not going to be any more sea. There's not going to be any beast of the sea, no more Roman Empire, no more Gentile nations thrown into the lake of fire. And likewise, there's not going to be any sea in the, in the new heavens and new earth. That, to me, that's the easiest way to look at that. We go now to Revelation 21.2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for a husband. The New Jerusalem is the Church of Christ. And we're going to talk about the New Jerusalem in a lot more detail in our next audio, verses 9 through 27. But, it, but New Jerusalem is mentioned here at the very beginning of the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. The way I like to look at it is the New Jerusalem is the capital of the new heavens and the new earth. 
I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I've already told you that I believe that the New Jerusalem, well, I told you that the New Heavens and the New Earth stands for the whole period of the Church of Christ from First Advent to Second Advent. I think that refers to the New Jerusalem, too. It's just two different metaphors saying the same thing, the kingdom of God, the church. Now, why can we say that Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem is the church? Well, look at the references here. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, made ready as a bride. So the New Jerusalem is kind of a mixed metaphor. you got a city that's a bride. She's adorned as a bride. Well, what's a bride? That's an obvious reference to the church, Ephesians 5.23. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. Christ is the bride of the church, and New Jerusalem is called a bride. There's your connection. Let's talk about the church starting in the first century, not starting in the final state. The church is called a holy city. In Revelation 21, 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down. Holy city? Well, that's New Testament. That's first century, too. Hebrews 12, 22, and 23. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, heavenly Jerusalem, Jerusalem from above. That's called a city. To the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven. That's the church. So the city is the church in Hebrews 12. It's Mount the city of the church is called Mount Zion in Hebrews 12:22. It's called a city in Hebrews 12:23, the 22, and it's called the church in Hebrews 12:23. So it's obviously talking about the church. It's a holy city, and guess what John says? He says this New Jerusalem is a holy city. The connections are obvious, folks. Now this New Jerusalem is coming down from heaven. Why? Because it's the heavenly Jerusalem. It comes down from heaven, heavenly Jerusalem. Let's look at this phrase coming down. In Revelation 3.12, the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. It comes down from heaven because it's the heavenly Jerusalem. It comes down. It's the church. Why? Because the people that live in this city are people who have the name of God the Father and God the Son on, the, on them, which means they're Christians. And so they're in the church, the new Jerusalem. We look at Galatians 4.26. This is Paul speaking. He says, but the Jerusalem above, above where? In heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. That's the church, obviously. Galatians 4.31. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but of a free woman. Well, that's just the same idea as the church. Heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 11.16. But they now desire a better place. This is the, hero, the heroes of faith. They now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, a heavenly city. So this phraseology of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, a holy city, a heavenly city coming down from above, it's everywhere in the New Testament. And so here in Revelation, it's talking about the church, first century church, all the way to the end of the world church, because she was a we were the bride of Christ from the very beginning in the first century. We go to verse 3, Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, again, that loud voice is probably God, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Now, I'm going to emphasize that prepositional phrase, among, uh, well, the preposition among. And in this one verse, we see among men, among them, among them. God is dwelling among them. Who is that? He's dwelling among his people. 
All right, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. What's the tabernacle? Well, the tabernacle in the vision was in the city. I kind of look at like Jerusalem's the capital of the new heavens and the new earth when tabernacle's in the middle of Jerusalem. So the Christians of the new Jerusalem, the tabernacle of God is among the Christians, and God, of course, lives in the temple. That's where the Shekinah glory was. Remember, you go into the Holy of Holies and see all that shining bright glory. So God is in his temple among his people. He's dwelling among his people now as I'll show you in just a minute, but it's now, N-O-W, now, not in some future millennial temple. The scriptures that prove this here, Second Corinthians 6.16, and what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? Temple, tabernacle, same thing, same basic idea, the place where God lives, for we are the temple of the living God. That's the church in the first century, the Corinthian church that Paul's talking about. And he uses that same phrase, among them, I will dwell and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. So God is walking and dwelling among them, just as John says in 21.3. Tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them in this new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. Let's look at Leviticus 26.11 and 12. I will place my residence among you. God is saying, I'm going to live among you. I will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. There's that phrase in Leviticus 26, among you, and John says in Revelation 21, 3, and he will dwell among them, and God himself will be among them, and the tabernacle of God is among men. Leviticus 26, 11, I will walk among you, and my residence is among you. You see the parallels there. Ezekiel 37, 26, 27, and 28, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be a permanent covenant with them. I will establish and multiply them and will set my sanctuary, that's the place God lives, among them, there's that phrase again, my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them, fairly close, dwelling place, place God lives, will be with them, same thing as among them. And then keep going here in Ezekiel 37, verse 28, when my sanctuary, place God lives, is among them forever. So you see, John is tracking Old Testament language pretty good, and if you're too busy reading the newspaper and figuring out about the 200 million man army and about all the who the Antichrist is in Israel and the Black Cobra helicopters and all that kind of stuff, you're going to miss this. You need to look at the Old Testament, not the newspaper, to interpret what John is saying. We go now to Revelation 21, verses 4 and 5. And he, that's God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Now he says, First things have passed away. All things have come new. Does that remind you of a first century writing reference? Well, of course, this is our the famous verse in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. And see, the new has come. Well, that's exactly the way John puts it in Revelation 24.5. 4 and 5, he says, first things have passed away. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the old has passed away. First things is old things. As John, John puts it as first things, Paul puts it as old things, has passed away. And then he says, I'm making all things new in Revelation 21. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the new has come. The parallels are perfectly obvious. There's one difference between Revelation 21, 4 and 5 and 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Paul is talking about redeemed individuals. John in Revelation is talking about a redeemed community. But nonetheless, it's still talking about the same thing. Now, that's my first argument that this verse, and again, this is a key verse because people will look at the wiping away of every tear from their eyes and they say, oh, this can't refer to the church age. It has to be the final state when nobody cries over anything. But I'm going to show that's not so. 
First of all, we note the tense. I am making. He says, I am making all things new. He doesn't say, I will make all things new. He says, I am making. That means he's in the process of getting us to this state where all tears will be wiped away from my eyes. Because notice he says, he will wipe away every tear from the eyes. So the condition where there are no tears is will in the future, but the process of making things new is in the present. I am making all things new. And there's your answer right there. Now, think about it. If Revelation 21 and 22 is the final state, why is God still making things new? I am making things new. You can't make things new in the final state because things in the final state are perfect already. They can't be made new. They're perfect. Now, that word for that trans, the Greek word that's translated I am making is poio, from the word poio, to do, to make. It's a present form. So you can translate it, behold, I make all things new. In that case, it could refer to the future state. So that is possible as a translation matter. You could make this refer to the future state that way. I make all things new. And the idea is I make it all new when, when in the future when I've wiped away all tears. But the progressive tense destroys that future state interpretation and, and, it, and it brings us back to the idea that Jesus is making all things new during the new covenant age. Well then, so how do we deal with this translation problem? Well, if poyo is progressive, which most translations have it that way, then it means that the final state cannot refer to the future, excuse me, the new Jerusalem and the new, and the new heavens and the new earth cannot refer to the future final state. It has to refer to the new covenant. Now, is that an off-the-wall translation to say I am making, to make it progressive? Let me give you some translations that translate that verb I am making. NIV, Christian Standard Bible, New Living Bible, English Standard Version, Contemporary English Version, New Century Version, the New Life Bible, the Message, the New Revised Standard Version, the Easy-to-Read Version. Why do all of these versions translate it as progressive, which destroys the future futurist interpretation of the of the new heavens and the new, new earth why do most bible versions have it as progressive william mount says this he's the guy that wrote the basics of biblical greek that standard greek text that almost everybody uses in seminary these days he says this a continuous translation in other words a progressive translation i am making a continuous translation is preferred unless there's evidence pointing otherwise and think about it that's the same thing in english how many times do you use the progressive versus the normal, just the plain old present indicative? Do you say, I go to the store? Honey, I go to the store today. Or do you say, I'm going to the store? I play baseball today. Or I'm playing baseball today. There's the progressive. So we, we always use the progressive. That's the most normal way to use it. I became aware of this fixing Chinese English from my Chinese students. And they would always use the simple tense because it was easy. They could remember it. And I, and I started thinking, we don't ever talk like that. What's wrong with this? And I realize because they're not putting it into the progressive form. So there's no question, folks. Revelation 21, 4 and 5 is referring to the new covenant. And God said, right, for these things are faithful and true. Let me read what David Chilton says about new. I am making all things new. Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus said, or God says in, the, in, the, in Revelation 21, verse 5, I am making all things new. Here's Chilton's quote, quote, the new creation will fill the earth. The whole creation will be renewed. This is true definitively. It will be absolutely true eschatologically. And it gives us the pattern for our work in between, for it is also to be worked out progressively. The new creation must be unfolded. It's every implication understood and applied by the royal priesthood in this age. Now, that's my emphasis of Chilton, but it's in this age. It's not in the future. Now, let me go back and point out the problem about 
there will no longer be any death. And people say, ah, therefore it can't refer to the church because there will no longer be any death. Well, the answer to that is look at all the wills in that in these two verses. He will wipe away every fear from their eyes. And when that happens, then there no longer be any death after he wipes away the tears in the eyes. So the will is in the future. There will no longer be any mourning. We're sure in the future. There's not, there's not going to be any mourning, but it won't happen until it will happen in the future. So there will no longer be any mourning in the future. But the making of all things new refers to all the things that the, the things that are made new, the new and living way that are that is being made for us in the new covenant age, the church age where we're living now. Now, I could go a little bit beyond that argument because John says in Revelation 21, there no longer will be any death. And again, people say, well, there's death in the new in the new covenant age. So so this must refer to the final state. Well, no, there's not going to be for Christians. There's not going to be any spiritual death. John 6:51 I am the living bread that came down from heaven if anyone eats of this bread he will live forever the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh so eternal life there's not going to be any death for Christians in the new covenant age but at any rate that's that's just an added argument it says if you want to take it physically well there will no longer be any death in the future at the consummation of the new covenant era Now we turn now to Revelation 21, verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now the first problem we have is who is the he? The immediate context is God is speaking, God the Father. We look at verse 5, the previous verse. We see the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Well, as soon as I say that, the throne might not be the throne in the in the vision that we see from the very first part of the Revelation. It might be talking about the great white throne. And as, as I said in that chapter, in chapter 20, that that person sitting on the great white throne could have been Jesus. So verse 5, the one seated on the throne might have been Jesus. And so when we get to verse 6, it's Jesus speaking. It could be God because God is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation 1.8. And the person speaking in verse 6 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God. Or it could be Jesus, because Jesus in Revelation 22.13, next chapter, says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning of the end. We've dropped down to verse 16, Revelation 22, and we see that it's Jesus speaking, because he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things. So it's either God or Jesus. I'm not sure which. It doesn't really matter. I tend to think it's Jesus because he says it is done. That's exactly what Jesus said on the cross. He says it is finished. It is done. It was the establishment of the new covenant by the taking away of the sins of believers. The fact that that was done at the cross and it says it is done here, that shows that we're still talking about first century stuff. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The end of what? Well, that's the end of the new covenant era. He established the new covenant at the beginning of the cross, and Jesus ends the new covenant era when he returns to fully redeem the world in the final state. The story begins in Matthew, and it ends in Revelation. Even our canon reflects the truth that the new covenant is about the career of the church. I'm indebted to David Chilton for those cogent observations. Now notice four words here in this verse, Revelation 21.6. Thirst, spring, water, life. Those four words are exactly the same four words that you see when Jesus in the early New Covenant times 
said in John 4.14 to the woman at the well, but whoever drinks from the water, that's word number one, I will give him will never get thirsty again, word number two. In fact, the water that I give him will become a well of water, that's word number one, springing, word number three, up in him for eternal life, word number four. Now that's obviously referring to regeneration going on during the early church age or during the church age, the inter-advent period, and those are the same four words that are used in Revelation 21.6. So how can we think that Revelation 21.6 refers to the final state at the end of the world? I don't think so. I think it refers to the New Covenant era. We go now to verse 7, Revelation 21. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The overcoming one is the Christian now in the church age. We don't have to look to some Christian in the far future, in the millennium or whatever. It's now in the church age. John doesn't even contemplate any other kind of Christian but the victorious Christian conqueror. He doesn't allow for defeatist Christianity, unlike certain forms of dispensational futurism that I know, mostly all of it. All hell's going to break loose at the end, and we're going to be conquered down as the Antichrist forces us to put a chip under our skins. But now John says he who overcomes will inherit these things. What about the weak Christian? Will not the weak Christian have God as his God? And will not he be God's son? John says the overcomer of the overcomer that I, God, will be his God and that he, the overcomer, will be my son. And by the way, that God there in verse 7 makes me makes it sound like the, the one that's saying it is done, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, in the previous verse 6 is referring to God the Father, not God the Son. Again, it doesn't matter. But at any rate, he does say, I will be his God and he will be my son. The question then becomes, what about the weak Christian, not the overcoming Christian? Well, the answer to that is all Christians are said to be overcomers. I guess if you're a weak Christian, you don't grow, you don't read your Bible, you don't pray, you don't witness and all that kind of stuff. Well, at least you've overcome sin by the grace of God and you're going to conquer the world at least when you die. First John 5, 4, the same John wrote this letter to First John. The first John letter is wrote Revelation. He says, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. Everyone, not just super Christians. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. If we believe in God, we've conquered the world. So I don't think we should be getting too, shall we say, how can I put this? I don't think we ought to be sitting down and worrying about who's the strong Christian, who's the weak Christian that's going to overcome. There's a tendency to do that. Don't think that's legitimate. We go to verse 21, verse chapter 21, verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's a great verse for anyone dumb enough to believe in universal salvation, universalism. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope I didn't trigger anyone by saying that. I hope I didn't cause you to think that I'm not showing love. A lot of judgment in the book of Revelation as well as a lot of salvation. We're finished now with Revelation chapter 21. In our next audio, we're going to... We're finished with Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. In our next audio, we will take up Revelation 21, 9 through 27, the New Jerusalem. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you've enjoyed this one.